Thanks for tuning in to Jin and Tantra. In this episode, we continue to discuss Carl Jung and the loves of his life. We also talk about connecting the inner and outer realities, accepting our inner judge, a brief history of MK Ultra, having contrast with the ethics of our current culture and how our partners stimulate deep aspects of ourselves. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Jen and Tantra, spirituality with a twist. The podcast that takes Tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, Shamanism, Chinese medicineism, <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by, and blends them into a tall, crisp, cool cocktail. Your spirit has been longing for. I want you to get together. Now isn't that refreshing? I want you to get together. Hey fellow GNTers, those of us like our spirituality with a twist. I got through at that time, Daniel, with like no flubs. Excellent, Eric. It's almost as if you've been doing it for years. Someone says we've been doing it for three years, which you acknowledged. Yes. So it's up on our Facebook and Instagram things. Three years of doing this. It's been a ball. Thank you so much, Daniel. As for you, my friend. Yeah. Thank you. And to our listeners. A big, big thanks there. It's like a it's like a ham radio where you know people are listening, but they're not interacting with you, you know? <laughs> like that. Yeah. All right. So we've been doing this whole series on relationships. We had a little break last week because we had a really cool interview with uh, uh, Remy Delan right? Which was a lot of fun to do. We're kind of back to doing this thing on relationships. And I think what was a like kind of interesting way to approach this, <clears throat> where we went through and we talked about monogamy and the challenges of monogamy. And we talked about some of the psychology around that. And then we did some things on serial monogamy. And we talked about Esther Perel's take on all of this kind of stuff. And now we're talking about polyamory, which would be the thing that's probably the least familiar. People have the least experience around this in our culture. But it gives us a chance to talk about Carl Jung. And now we're going to like, I guess, dive deep into the mysteries and secrets of Carl Jung's life <laughs> and talk about like this part of his life. Right. And so we did the big setup like uh, about the Jung stuff. So we learned a lot about Jung. And now we're going to see how this fits into this whole aspect of why he th I think for me, what was important, Daniel, was like, why did he think this way? And what were the things that he thought about the world that led him to live his life this way, which is what we're interested in this podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this one was a little bit more uh, sort of prep for me on this. I had to think about this kind of deep and, you know, research even a little bit more than maybe some of the other stuff we did. And, um, uh, and again, like look through materials on Jung where he's just not getting bashed, which I'll talk about more in a little bit. But anyway, so there, this came up as I was looking to this and I thought this is like an interesting place kind of to start. There's this point that's made, you know, Jung was famously sort of like a, a protege of Sigmund Freud. And the point would be that Freud kind of did this thing for sexuality. He kind of brought it out as a subject matter that could be more talked about or something. So that's kind of his maybe big contribution here to like bring sexuality and starting to talk about sexual needs and drives and desires. And a lot of times how this affects people <clears throat> either in their childhoods or um, 
in their adult lives and their adult relationships, especially I think within like what would be more like traditional relationships, traditional kind of long-term marriages and things. But then Jung did this other thing. He like, it, it was phrased really well. He brought out the needs and drives more of the soul or the spirit mm -hmm. or something. And so he put forth the existence where Freud found there was a whole inner world that was full of all of these needs and drives and unconscious things. Jung kind of came up with the idea there's this inner world, which is just, just as expansive, <clears throat> rich, and sprawling as the outer world. So yet you're surrounded by this outer universe. You know, we know that keeps going on out into the cosmos. But Jung had this idea like, yeah, there's a sprawling inner world too um, in a way that probably people wouldn't thought of. And he says it kind of like that. That, you know, the inner world of people is just as rich and interesting and just as expansive and, you know, approaching infinity as the outer world. And I really like that idea. What do you think of that one? Yeah, I mean, as you're talking, I'm I'm listening, but I'm having this whole like super deep inner experience. <laughs> <laughs> so it took, someone to, it took someone to say that, right? <clears throat> yeah, someone well, I, I was thinking, you're talking and I'm sitting here thinking and I'm just wondering, like, how did many, how did the, how did people practice this kind of stuff like in the 1500s, 16, 17, 1800s, 14, 13, 12, all the way down. Like what were, what, what did they have access to? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. There what you know, reading what certainly wasn't widely available for people, you know, you basically, I mean, from what we, from what I know, I'm not a historian for sure. You know, hell, I barely know what happened this last decade, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. But let us, you know, I mean, I, okay, I'm, I'm pretty aware. I'm up to date, right? Yeah. You're being a little bit more modest, but okay. okay, fine. Yeah. But like, how would they come up if they couldn't read, you know, like how would it, how would they come across teachings of self-development? Was that even a thing? And then even talking about like trauma, Right. Mm -hmm. You're talking about like sexual repression, you know, via like Carl Jung or uh, Sigmund Freud. And then and then, you know, the, the sort of like the expression of that and, and with Carl Jung's work, like people, were, families were living in one house in one in one room places. It's not like the parents had some kind of separate bedroom. Like, no, they were totally fornicating in the living room with the kids. Right? You know what I'm saying? Like or wherever. I don't, I don't, I don't know all of that either. I'm just saying, like it's certainly I possible. Know. I know it's, it's certainly possible. possible. Mm -hmm. So what what I'm but what I'm saying is that like life probably was much more difficult at that point, and I don't know that like there was these teachings weren't available. And I call you know what Carl Jung brought to the table, what Sigmund Freud brought to the table is teachings. You know for sure it's self development. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? I think that's certainly the attitude we're taking in this podcast towards it. Yeah. So like I just I'm just yeah, sitting here wondering what did what did they do? Was it were they even aware of that? kind of a thing or was it just sort of life in general i, I don't know i'm just like well, you I mean, know the whole question going back i mean you know there were people who were thinking about these things obviously if you flash sure. back or something and people would write poems and people would write books and people would write whatever i think the thing that jung did and see if this resonates with you sure is for a, a for a cultural turn that got very externally oriented you know mm -hmm. like your scientific enlightenment mm -hmm. and start looking outside right and exploring the outer universe, nothing wrong with that, right? And you'll learn maybe about the universe overall, inner and outer by doing that. At least that would be my attitude towards it. The attitude I would take on the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. It certainly fits into Asian culture. You learn about the inside world by looking outside and vice versa, right? But he seemed to come up with a way of saying, okay, we've been spending these 
last couple hundred years looking at the outside world, why don't we turn our attention inside and see that there's this rich inner world mm -hmm. that I think maybe he thought people had turned away from. Does that make sense what I'm saying there? It's a yes. modern problem. Yeah. yeah I, the only thing I would say though, Eric, I don't think that we have just recently become obsessed with the outside world. I feel like that it's always been that way. It's just that with technology and with collaboration, actually, that we can do more together. We can build off each other's work than we ever have been able to previously via, you know, computers, telephone, you know, whatever, Morse code, you know, all these things have created alliances and therefore the science as a, as kind of like a movement in and through societies has been woven together by various people simultaneously. Whereas I think previous to the enlightenment, it was far more, this person here had their idea then that person may have borrowed some of their teachings, but maybe not too much. And then they build and they, so you have this kind of popping up, right? Where things are more woven together now and therefore it's able to grow. And so people can have that as kind of like some, I guess, ideas that are permeating throughout society and that just become eventually standardized, you know? Well, this is like your inner Capricorn. <laughs> it's there. Yeah, it's there. So I don't know what to say about it, you know. Um, all I could okay, what all I can really say is that I think that's how Jung thought about his what he was doing for himself. Mm. I think I think, you know, like you're kind of presenting this vision of this. <clears throat> all I can really say in response is I think Jung thought this way. I think he felt that people had become had become outer directed in mm. a way that maybe previously wouldn't have been. Maybe sure. that's not true. I don't know, but I think he felt that way. And then it was sort of a thing to repoint out to people that you have this rich inner world that we have been neglecting. So, I mean, he, but that was neglected. Maybe it's not true in his framing of it, but I think that's how he saw it. But wouldn't he be, wouldn't he have seen people who were coming for therapy? All the time. Right. And so th there, my, my point then is that those people who are experiencing difficulty in their life, instead of directing them continually towards an outside mean towards a external mediators, he reflected him. He reflected them back on the inside, which seemed to be the salve for external focus. Or, or like maybe in a way, cause we did stuff on synchronicity too. Maybe yeah. in a way like the inside and the, I'm doing some weird hand motion. <laughs> <laughs> I know what that. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> But maybe have the inside and the outside connected with one another or something. Sure. You know, Eric, what's I, think that's, I think that's his critique. I think it's his idea that people got so outerly focused that they lost connection to their inner selves. Well, yeah, I mean, we agree. That way. I, think I also think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I agree completely. That's still on there's, point. there's a, there's a, a saying, what, an axiom, if you will, uh, uh -huh. that I heard from the Buddhist tradition and I forgot, maybe it was Lama Glenn who told me. Or maybe it was Brad Warner in, in one of the books that you've gifted me over the years. Yeah, I've been uh, nice with that. <laughs> um, but that you don't um, you don't have to smash the vase to realize that the in the space on the inside is the same as the space on the outside, or something else like this. Yeah, there's some kind of point like that, and I think Jung is is that's a nice that's a nice connection to that because I think he feels that way. Yeah, he feels something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, I, like, there's so much you could say. Once you start talking about this fucking dude, it never ends. That's right. 
That's right. <laughs> but yeah, he does seem to see some kind of connection between, we've been talking about that in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk about anything with Jung, then you end up like, okay, wait a minute, what's he saying yeah. about this? Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it goes everywhere. But I, because I, so I did some research, I was listening to this guy, Bernardo Castro, who's really a proponent of Jung and a proponent of kind of like the idealistic way of thinking about the world and reality that the world is really all mind. It's been sort of an interesting thing. And so he has a whole book written on Jung. And, you know, he's getting to that place too, inner and outer. Mm-hmm. And Jung's interested in the idea, like, yeah, there's like, there's what's the thing with, what's the connection between inner and outer reality? I was talking with my son about it during the week. And I was like, okay, if the synchronicity happens, if external events happen um, that mirror what's happening in your inner world, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> Probably saying, what the fuck does that mean to my son too? Because we can talk that way to each other occasionally. And his gut reaction, you know, you know, he has an earthy quality to him in many ways too. And he's like, well, maybe you're just projecting that connection. But it was like, no, that's not really his point that you're just projecting a connection that you want to see. Like it seems to really happen. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's the inner hour thing, you know? Well, so then maybe that's a good way to go to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have him listen to our synchronicity episode, Eric, and he will see that that is. <laughs> I, will, I will assign that to him, my son. Not to force beliefs on you, but listen no. to this. I don't force any beliefs on the kids, but, but, you know, it's like, he's interested. So though he's a skeptic, <laughs> right? So the earth is for sure flat. That's, you know, that's been proven. Well, he's, a, he's a scientific person. So he okay. would be like, he said the funniest thing to me, Daniel, and we'll have to do an episode later, but he was just like, he gave me this look <laughs> that was like, so skeptical. I don't even know if I could do it for the camera. It had this like, just like, like beaming out this like lasers of skepticism. And he said like, do you really think some like eight headed dude exists in the universe? Talking about those Buddhist images. You think there's some eight headed guy out there? Really? And I was like, okay, this is going to be a long conversation, but he's a skeptical little dude. So mm. we'll this. Um, well, when he meets one, one day, then the question will be answered empirically. Yeah. That's science. That's how science works. That's empiricism. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so the thing is, like, if Jung is talking about this, then we all have these rich inner worlds. And then when two people meet, it's like almost like the colliding of two universes or something, mm-hmm. potentially. Mm-hmm. And I think what he's trying to say here, the inner and outer can join in love and sexuality. He says this can happen. And then I think the point is that it can happen, but it doesn't necessarily. Obviously, you can have a lot of contact between people that, let's, I mean, it just doesn't have that power to it, you know? But he's, I think he is fascinated by those moments of when this happens in this intense way. And we'll talk more about that. But one of the things he said is he said, the meeting of two personalities is like the contact of two alchemical substances or chemical substances. If there is any reaction, both are transformed, which I think is a beautiful way of saying that. Mm-hmm. I think is very true. But it's because there's this rich inner world that's connected with this outer world that this alchemical magic can happen. So I think that's what fascinates him. And we'll explore like the how and whys of this as we go, because now we'll start going through his life, right? And say how this played out for him. So, okay, a little, little context for me personal, and then you'll have maybe your own story around this. Okay, so for me, this goes all the way back to my time in undergrad at University of Chicago, where I had a professor, I still remember his name, Professor James Anderson, Dr. James Anderson. And he was the first person I had a psych class with with that really caught my imagination. 
So I did other psych classes and they were good and I was interested, but this really captured me because he talked about the people who were really interesting, like Jung and Carl Rogers, who we talked about. He did some stuff on Freud. And by a kind of a funny twist of fate, he knew a relatively famous psychologist named Henry Murray. He was like, you know, knew him as a as a a faculty or, you know, like an advisor or something in his life. And so Murray knew Jung. So it was like this very small degree of separation. So you could hear stuff about Jung's life from someone who basically knew Jung, right? And so this Professor Anderson, they had shared this story. He said, this Henry Murray was going through this crisis period because he realized he had fallen in love with two people. And he didn't know what to do about it. He also had the opportunity to go meet Jung, which at that time probably would have been, you know, a trip across the ocean on a boat or whatever, right? So he was meeting Jung for whatever the reasons were, but he traveled all the way over, met Jung in Zurich, right? And, you know, Professor Anderson relayed this story where they were out in Jung's boat. Jung's wife bought him a boat. It's kind of like a famous thing in like Jung's stories. He had this boat and he would boat on the lake. And he and Murray had been there for a number of days talking shop and psychology and going around. And by this time, Jung was an older guy and seems to be like, you know, a pretty blunt person, you know, not in a mean way but pretty direct. So they're out on the boat on the lake and uh, Henry Mur Jung finally turned to him and said, well, you traveled all the way across the ocean to see me. We've been talking this theoretical psychology stuff. That's been cool, you know, but why are you really here? Like, what do you want from me? What do you really want to know? You came here for some reason beyond just that. Like, why are you really here? <laughs> he posed the question to him and being like asked so directly, Murray was eventually like, well, I've gotten to this problem in my life married person, but I fall in love with this other person. I don't know what to do, you know? And um, uh, Jung said, okay, okay, I understand. That's a real reason to be here. And then he told the story of his life to Henry Murray, which especially involves someone who we're going to talk about, you know, uh, I think one of the big loves of his life, which would be Tony Wolf. So, so he, you know, and so Professor Anderson kind of relayed this story and it was interesting for me. I'd never heard anyone talking about this kind of stuff before. Though we'll do our own episodes later on. My my house growing up wasn't really entirely monogamous, but um, but you know I so I wasn't shocked or anything. But I'd never heard anyone talk in this way about this. And Jung eventually was kind of like, well, this can happen in life, and sometimes you have to like kind of go through where love leads. And you know, so he kind of like threw this back and said, okay, sometimes you have to do this. And here's my experience. And he just shared his experience of. But ultimately, for the purpose of our, our episode, would be like kind of a polyamory thing before polyamory was a thing. So, and it seems like Jung would occasionally like, you know, be that way with people. He would go through and he'd say, well, okay, that's a very tough situation, but, you know, here's my example from my own life and here's what you, maybe you can learn from it. So we get to talk about this and try to figure this out, right? Mm. Now, it's fascinating. <clears throat> I wanted to make this point too, because I wanted to talk about judgment because reading these different things about Jung, obviously he gets trashed a lot you know, probably from different directions with different motivations from different people, right? So he's going to get a lot of, he gets a lot of shit. But certainly I realized when I was, you know, we, we put together a little show notes and I was putting the show notes together for this one. I was like, well, for me, I thought a lot about my attitudes on judgment. And I was like, well, I don't want to have a judgmental episode on this. And I think I was just thinking about judgment overall, Daniel. I don't know how you think about this, but I'm not going to judge Jung. And I think for me, it's really important that I don't want to be a judgmental person. So for me in doing these episodes, and I think in doing this whole podcast, three years, 
<laughs> I think it's for me been a thing of like, okay, I don't want to be judgmental. And I think doing the podcast has even helped me get less so. Yes. Because we're kind of constantly talking about other ways of seeing things. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, that's fine. People are going to see things in different ways. And certainly when you talk about relationships, and this episode has been like, these episodes have been brewing for a bit from my point of view. Mm. Yeah, you know, I just don't want to be a judgmental person about however people try to solve their life problems. Does that make sense right. what I'm trying to say? Yes. Yeah. So, and I went back and I flashed back to my experiences growing up. And uh, my dad would, you know, like I've talked on the, on the podcast, my relationship with my parents, real complicated. There was definitely like physical, emotional abuse things. But of course, I love my parents too. Complicated people. And, you know, my dad would have moments of honest, honesty, honesty with me too. Sometimes they were, sometimes they were fueled by like multiple drambuies mm -hmm. and then the honesty would flow. But his point was something like, my dad said to me, it's hard to judge other people from the outside. And he was talking about even his relationship with my mom. And he was basically saying from the outside, it's really hard to judge. And he was saying, you know, and he wasn't the, un, he wasn't that unjudgmental of a guy. <laughs> but maybe he was struggling with it too. And he was trying to say, like, it's hard to judge. It's hard to really know yeah. what's happening between people, you know? And back in the day, there was like a kind of like a counterculture Boy Scouts thing that was sort of based on like uh, uh, indigenous peoples, Native American culture. And you can say whatever you want about that. I suppose you could say cultural appropriation or whatever, but that was just the vibe of the times, you know, when I was a kid. And so we would, you know, it, and for me, it was interesting because I got exposed to thought processes of another culture so it was like purposely kind of did as like a thing like not the boy scouts you know and one of the things they said there was like you don't judge another person till you've walked a mile in their moccasins or whatever you know that kind of that kind of attitude and so i think that's how i feel about these things you know i want to not be a judgmental person or reserve my judgments for like very particular situations where maybe you can say something judgmental that might make sense i know does that make sense in the end <laughs> yes yeah How's this been for you, Daniel? Have you felt like you've gotten, let me ask you two ones on this. Do you know when you heard about this part of Jung's life? Did you know anything about this before or no? I did not. Okay. So this is new stuff for you. Yes. And then how does the, I mean, have you found that same thing? Or do you feel like you're getting more, or I'd say more and more less judgmental? <laughs> are you getting more, more and more non-judgmental as these episodes are going on? Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, yeah. there's, Part of it is just the talking, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just in terms of like having the dialogue and being mindful about what we're saying, thinking about people who are listening, creating the kind of, I guess, like useful transmission of teachings and experience that can transcend our perceived individual limitations within the space of like acceptance or something right yes yeah and so because of that like there is a far more openness and to me openness is kind of stands juxtaposed to judgmental mind states you know and there was a um i'm reading i just finished reading that book the light that shines through infinity and he like towards the end of the book i'm looking for it right now because i happen to have it here uh, but they were talking about you know being critical and, and listening to the inner critic and he's you know he's, he's the author is basically saying like this is a, this is a japanese zen master yeah he's basically saying like you don't never have you don't have to never be critical but 
when you're being critical, in what way is it benefiting somebody else? Is your yeah. is your critique assisting in the betterment of this particular thing, right? And you'll know that because th does does your critique cut, or does your does your critique highlight some insufficiencies, you know, in this particular thing? Now, sometimes highlighting insufficiencies in a process or a relationship or whatever is hard to hear, right? But you're not doing it from a place of knowing better. You're doing it from a place of trying to improve. Now, there's obviously some gray areas in there. I realize that, but it's not what you're doing, but how you're doing it. So if your goal is actually to improve and you could say, hey, you know, um, kicking your younger brother every day before you leave your bedroom is probably not a great idea for his digestive system. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. now I know he's in your way all the time. However, you know, yeah. maybe move around him. You know what I'm saying? I had a funny conversation about um, BDSM. I was talking about it with somebody and I'm not the most BDSM person. I mean, we all have our own tastes and such things, but I know people who are into it. And I had a, a friend I was talking to, we we're talking on the phone and he started talking about what he thought motivated people to do this. Mm -hmm. And it was a little like narrow and a little harsher sounding. And I, I said, you know, wait a minute. We had on, uh, you know, Lady India on the podcast who talked about this. And she was basically saying how that helped her generate a lot of trust and get over abusive relationships and like, mm. you know, playing those kinds of controlled games of trust and submission and taking control was like important for her to like reestablish that. So I tried to share that episode insight that she, you know, had when we were talking with her because I realized like, yeah, that's, that's people are different <laughs> and the judgments like, uh, you know, don't necessarily hold up but people are like that right and i think i wanted to like do an episode where we talk about young in a non-judgmental way that was really important to me mm. i found um, okay go I ahead found a passage here it says um i mean it's a longer thing right but it says being critical towards the outside is simultaneously being critical towards the inside that is the situation of your life so if you are being critical towards some object you are being critical towards yourself and i don't mean you should not be critical but if you feel critical towards yourself, other people are outside circumstances, be careful. Yep. And, well and the the reason why he's saying that is because they're because you know we're all connected. So therefore, if you're being critical of some other being, you're being critical of yourself. So when he's saying uh if you're being critical towards some object, he's referencing the connection between object and subject. Therefore, you can you have to be inherently critical of both. So outside, inside. Same, same. So I, I quite, I quite like this. So, and I feel like, well, like however you're seeing that on the outside is a reflection of your own mind anyways. Exactly. And so, right. and so for me, judgment and critic and being critical are the same thing, which is why I went yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think like in the, in the, in my flashback classroom situation where I first heard Jung's life being talked about in this way, things about his personal life that I wouldn't have otherwise heard if it wasn't for this professor Anderson back in the day which I think I'll talk, we're going to save talking about our own lives till later on. So it synchronistically timed up in a funny way with my own life, foreshadowing of a future episode. <laughs> but um, so he went through and I think, I'm, I'm kind of a non-judgmental person anyway. So I was like, oh, interesting. But I could imagine that people would judge Jung because he's living a lifestyle that's like outside the box, right? Mm -hmm. But the funny thing was, and I wanted to just do this briefly because Professor Anderson knew this, Henry Murray and Henry Murray, you can judge. 
if we talk about judgment and the reason why I, I maybe you don't even know this story, Daniel, it's fucking trippy. So here's what happened. This Henry Murray, who was the guy who traveled to meet Jung in Switzerland and came back again, right? He was at Harvard and he was involved in almost like MK Ultra CIA kind of stuff. You got to give a little background for our- You know MK Ultra. I, uh, most of our audience is a little bit younger, so. Oh, okay. I mean, do you, you've heard of it, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go through it. <clears throat> so the weird thing about this is it was a CIA thing where they were trying to figure out if they could psychologically break people. Mm -hmm. So what they would do is they would essentially psychologically fuck with people's heads to see if they could crack their personalities. Mm. It was kind of a deprogramming exercise. And it was like kind of like around the idea of like trying to like deprogram like Soviet spies. So you'd catch them and you'd sort of like psychologically mind fuck them, psychologically torture them to see if you could break them. And then you'd learn secrets and things like that. So incredibly dark stuff. And it's the kind of thing that you wouldn't think is really true. But if you want to hear something really weird, just like search MK Ultra, it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Should actually happen. And one of the people Henry Murray did this to was the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. So he came from Chicago. I guess he was a really kind of like precociously smart kid. He went into Harvard at 16. And what they would do is they would they would take um, they would take people in who were undergrads a lot of times and they would go through and they would interview them about their beliefs. And you'd make this bond with the person. Like you pretend like you're really interested. So you record everything they believed and you'd kind of try to get into their inner world. And then a lot of times what they would do then is they would like give them like psychedelics mm -hmm. and they would trip their brains out and then get a bunch of people to psychologically attack them with specifics that they got from doing these interviews. So they would go exactly after the person's beliefs and they would set these kind of like attack sessions up to like psychologically torment these people and just basically try to break their brains, break their psyches. And they did this to the Unabomber. And so it makes you think, okay, that explains a Unabomber, how you get a person like that. That I'm going to judge. <laughs> that I'm going to judge, you know? So I was just thinking about where judgments lie and all that in the two characters in the my experience with this. Jung, in the end, I'm not going to judge. Mm. You know, this guy I'm going to judge. Fair. You know, and it, I don't know what my undergrad professor knew about this, if he knew about this MK Ultra type stuff or not. I don't know if MK Ultra was a thing yet, but it was those same kinds of programs, you know, mm. where they were just trying to do this. So anyways, I just, the, this whole part was just me thinking about judgment. You know, there's times when you're going to judge. Mm. And ironically enough, the person I was going to judge was the other guy in the story, right? But, you know, not because of anything in his personal life, but because of this stuff. So I don't know. It was interesting for me to think about judgment. I've been thinking about that a lot, you know? Where do you put your judgments? And, you know, especially when you start talking about people who are living lifestyles that are just different, right? And it's mm -hmm. a big thing in our culture now, right? There's just lots of judgment going on. Don't you think well, that's true? There's just judgments people, flying everywhere in American culture. When you, when you dive- Everyone, everywhere. People are basically by, dive bombing for the spotlight. They're dive bombing for, you know, attention, right? Yeah. Attention is the is the world's most precious resource at this point. Although lithium batteries are going to make a run for the money here pretty soon, you know? <laughs> the way you can keep the attention drug going, right? Right. Like where yeah, do you, where, you know, like they were, I was just reading an article, you know, talking about the new, you know, social media app threads versus Twitter. And it, it's not about, like they don't look at like active users as people who use it occasionally. It's do you return daily? 
Do you return okay. every day? That's the that's what they call a quote unquote active user, you yeah. know. And to me, just reading how they take that statistic means that like people are completely these these applications and whatever they're completely entrenched in who you are, right? If you return to something, there are very few things I return to daily, you know. My toothbrush, I guess, you know, whatever. Yeah. Right. Other than that, like it's a pretty rare thing. I don't wear the same clothes. You know, we probably take different routes to where we're going. Like, yeah, we have some more expensive items that we use over and over again, computer, cell phone, and whatnot. But like application, that's that's a that's a a conscious choice to go back over and over and over again on, you know. So it that just I don't know, it just hit me kind of Yeah, I mean the, the, the yeah. I mean, in some ways, things are getting less judgmental, but there is a turn up of judgment now. So anyways, I would just want to like, at least talk about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So for Jung, then we have to talk about like what actually happened. So that's the next big kind of part of this. What actually happened to Jung? Because if you don't know his story, as we were talking like pre-episode, then you don't really know, like you need a context. You need what actually happened in the dude's life to kind of figure out what this means to him. So we thought, well, we'll go through, we'll talk about what happened in his life. And then we'll also kind of, as we're going through look at uh you know what things jump out for us about this mm -hmm. so so i think we're going to talk about maybe three big figures three big women in young's life they weren't him. that big though well they're quite they're quite petite and i guess quite lovely but like psychologically big <laughs> got it okay but different strokes for different folks no judgment that was uh, the whole point <laughs> that's it we're free of it so um so one is emma young which is Jung's long-term wife. And they met like, so we're trying to figure out like what Jung actually thought about these things. So they met, he first met her when he was 25 and she was 17. So, and he seems to have almost fallen in love with her almost at their first meeting, that there was something in him. Now, I think this is really kind of important to understand him as a person and what his attitude is about things. Cause it looks like he was a person who kind of felt those kinds of uh, deep, quick connections with people or he believed in a way in that you know that idea that you can find people that you feel very profoundly connected with so it's almost probably part of synchronicity to me or part of um you know part of almost like an idea of like karma or something that you have karmic mm -hmm. connections with people so it seems like that would happen with him because he decided that very quickly now they won't get married until three years later on like so I don't even know if he was like in the relationship with her in the beginning, but he decided to himself like, yes, this is the one I'm going to have in my life. Um, I learned this phrase recently called Inyun. I saw what this movie. Inyun. It's a Korean phrase. It's like Inyun. <laughs> and it has to do with like karmic connections between people. That's mm. like karmic connections. You like everything everywhere all at once, that movie. There's another movie from that same company called Past Lives. That's right. Yeah. And so they bring up this term inyun, this idea that you'll feel this spark or connection with some person very quickly. And I know I felt that in my life, right? So we all can talk about our own stuff or think about how this relates to ourselves. But Jung seems to be a person who was open to that. And I think some people are and some people are. What do you think about that? It's possible. It's possible you never meet them, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think right? people are different in their openness to that, though? Yes. I mean, I think that goes to someone's level of, of internal guardianship, you know, so you can be, we'll say, you know, awestruck by a person. The question is, do you pursue it or not? Are you, 
sure of that feeling? Do you listen to your own inner voice? Do you have the the courage to follow through with what that, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And so I think that's part of it. And I guess, you know, even maybe even deeper to the subtext of this is that it seemed like it might be sort of fateful, right? And that like, there's not, might not, there might not be much you can do to avoid it, but I don't believe, I don't believe in fate in that way, actually. I think that some things are placed in your life at particular times for you to choose, you know, and if that's your choice, then you have to go through and maybe it'll be easier because it's, you know, maybe a, a good lesson for you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to take that route. You know what I'm saying? I think that like for for Jung, it's something where I guess what strikes me about it, Daniel, is it's kind of a metaphysical statement almost. It's a statement sure. of what you believe about the world. Yeah. And he seems to like actually believe about the about the world that this is a thing. Now, whether that means fate, like you have to do this or something, but it seems right. like in multiple times he'll meet someone and he'll decide this is an extremely important relationship for mm-hmm. me. And that means I have to act on it. And it seems to be part of like, an underlying metaphysical way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Like he just believes that that's how the universe works. People meet, there's these powerful connections between people. They're all chemical, you know, and then you, you're, you're going to have to follow them because he does it multiple times. It looks right. like, you know, so, and like, to me, I think part of that will depend upon whether or not you just believe something like that's even possible. It depends on how you look at the world. Sure. If you think the world is like a spiritual place where people are crossing paths with one another to deeply affect one another mm-hmm. in ways, then you'll probably have a different attitude than if you just, you know, it's, it depends on your almost like whole underlying paradigm of how yeah. you think about things. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when I was trying to think, well, why does he do these things the way he does? You know, if we take a step back and look at like, because we did these episodes of how this guy thinks, right? And he seems to think, okay, there's this really super rich inner world that's connected to the outer world. And then these magical events happen that are spiritually and psychologically transformative. And it has a lot to do with, ultimately, it looks like for him, like his connections with other people and how it fits into the whole idea of love within his life. He seems to think that way. And then later on, he'll write a book about synchronicity. You know what I mean? Mm. So, but some people won't believe that, right? But he does. So, you know. Freud wouldn't, for example. Freud's more like a biological materialist evolution person. There's nothing special about this. He'd probably say it has something to do with pheromones or mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever he would say. But Jung's a psychospiritual person, so he thinks about this differently, you know? So I thought that was very striking in terms of like looking at how he looked at the world. Mm-hmm. And he'll say things like, I wanted to grab a few of his quotes on this. So he'll say things like, I, I have again and again been faced with the mystery of love and have never been able to explain what it is. Like he'll say those things. So he's like, like, kind of like, how would you say he has a, he has a, a sense of their, of that mysterious quality, what it means for two people to meet and deeply affect one another mm. feels that very deeply Well, other people may not. Right. But if you're not, if you are, if you're not like this, it helps you understand why someone would be this way. Sure. Why is he doing what he's doing? Because he believes in this very strongly, you know? And again, he believes in that alchemical transformative power. And it's exactly like, even from. The little quotes that you have here, Daniel, he'll say something like, love is a force of destiny whose power reaches from heaven to hell, you know? So it runs this gambit of experiences, but it Mm. has this like, you know, compelling quality to it. And it seems like it happens to him with like Emma, who will be his life partner, but it seems to happen to him in other times, especially in this very particular window of his life. Anyways, continuing to tell the story. So they eventually get married when he's 28 and she was 20. And it looks like she, she kind of, he kind of describes her as the foundation of his life. 
So she's sort of more like the yin foundation, stable, stable aspect of life or something. It also seems like that's true financially because she comes from like a very wealthy family. So Jung sort of marries in the money. And so his financial problems are kind of like solved too in a way with this. I don't think that was by any cynical like purpose or intent on his part. I think he literally was just in love with her and he wanted to be with her. But it also happened that, you know, she was from a very wealthy background. Well, that doesn't hurt. It certainly doesn't hurt. (laughs) Probably affects his life, right? You know, he'll have to tough it out, Eric. Do more things. (laughs) That's not our lives. No. That's okay. So there's a big thing about the privacy of their life. Though this was interesting for me too. Um, when I first was getting interested in like understanding this aspect of Jung, like I said, I read some things on this and they were talking about his life and some of the things were pretty critical and negative as I'd said in previous episodes. But the way I understood it was that there was no, Jung didn't talk about this part of his life. And even with the biographers that I thought were really good, they kind of said, yeah, uh, Swiss people are very private. They don't talk about their private things and so on. But doing my future research on this, as I've been doing to prepare for this little podcast, it seems like that's not entirely true. Hmm. Jung has this really famous kind of autobiography called The Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And he didn't write it himself. He was an older guy. He was just giving interviews to someone who became the author of this. And I thought he just didn't talk about his private life at all because it's not in the book, you know. Um, but as it turns out, when you listen to the actual tapes, which I guess are preserved maybe in the Library of Congress or something. So as I was doing my little research, I was I was reading something from somebody who had actually done all this stuff. He had listened to these tapes that you had recorded. And apparently he talked pretty freely about all of this. So he wasn't really trying to keep it on the QT or something like that either. He was willing to talk about that. He was an old guy now. But he said, oh yeah, this is what happened in my life. And he just shared it pretty openly. So that was kind of revelatory for me because I didn't think that's how it was. Mm. So I don't think he was going to talk about things when all the people involved were still alive. Sure. You know, just out of respect to people's privacy, you know, but apparently, and so I thought like he, you know, when I read this autobiography, I thought, well, he just doesn't want to talk about this. And that read a little funny, you know, cause you're like, okay, you're not naming the parts of your life that were really significant. Why not? But it seems like he was willing to do it. Like he was willing to talk about it. And I guess they just made the editorial choice. The author did who was interviewing him in the end, just to keep that out more than Jung was trying to not talk about things that were very personal like that. It seems like he mm. did talk about it pretty openly. Mm. Ultimately, at the end of his life, he was like, yeah, this is what happened to me, which seems to vibe with what happened in UFC, you know, right. for me. He was like, okay, yeah, I'm an old guy now. Here's what I did. If that's helpful to you, you know, you can look at it for yourself. Which I, I guess I, it changed my attitude even towards this. I thought I like, kind of respect that even more. He wasn't, he wasn't, certainly wasn't trying to dissemble or anything like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess the other thing you you think about this was, um, so he was obviously he loved, he loved Emma, you know, and she he describes her as the foundation of his life, the foundation of his house. He describes her sort of like the queen of his life. You might wonder, like, was he promoting of her independence? And you might get wondering about that. But the way it looks to me is that it seems like he was supportive of her. So she became an analyst herself, right? So he supported her going out and not just being someone who was bond within the house or something like that. You know, it doesn't seem, it seems like he had an open attitude towards the people in his life, towards the relationships with the women he had in his life, that he was, 
accepting and promoting of them as individuals. Mm. I tried to find quotes from him about this. And he says this thing, a marriage is more likely to be successful, successful if the woman follows her own star and remains conscious of her own wholeness. Mm -hmm. So again, you might wonder, okay, did he have that kind of attitude? But it seems like he did, you know? And so he did try to have, you know, she was a mother, uh, you know, they had kids together, but he also was very promoting of her kind of being her own person. It seems like he was that kind of guy, to be honest, you know? Um, then the other thing, interesting thing about this, when we get to like the relationships that are going to go outside the box was that, you know, if you think about him as a person, he was from this very Christian household. His family were pastors going way back in the community where he was from. Mm. Uh, it's a very Christian country. These are, you know, Judeo-Christian ideas of how you're supposed to live. And so I know what I was just imagining, it just seems to me that he never would have anticipated that his life would go in the direction it went. I really get the feeling like he wasn't, wasn't prepared for where this was going to go, you know, where this like the twists and the turns were going to happen with this. And I just thought we'd throw that out a little bit as something to talk about, because I think that's a common experience. I think you can have an idea, especially you grew up in a culture, you have an idea of where your life is going to go. And then it just doesn't go that way, right? In these major ways. What do you think about that part, Daniel? I think it's especially true in relationships. People have an idea of what they think things are going to be and that it goes in these other directions. Yeah, but you never know where your life is going to evolve into, you know? And so it just seems logical that your the way that you view everything will, will shift and change over time, right? That like only the mark of somebody who hasn't lived a long time would think that it's going to be this exact same way forever <laughs> you know I also think it's like presuppositions of what you think are things are going to be like if you're him you get married you think okay i'm just gonna be a married dude for the rest of my life sure. and that's what it's going to be because that would be your expectation mm -hmm. given the cultural setting that you're in you know you're a judeo-christian dude living in the judeo-christian culture you get 28 you get married you don't expect your life is going to become this poly whatever the heck it becomes i don't think mm -hmm. he was intending that at all mm -hmm. it seems like he was really shocked you know that it went this way and yet and yet and it seems to say something about like presuppositions to me, you know, mm -hmm. you really don't know where things are going to flow. But I think that's very common with people. Does that seem true to you too? I mean, I think that's common with everybody. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, some people might view the external world changing more than they are. Right. And so there's this kind of movement to get, get back to the way things that were to the way things were right on a, on a nostalgic piece for sure. Right. You know, I've had conversations with your mom, the, the great Judy Baker, you know, via our Facebook messenger uh, <laughs> texting. My mom does that. She'll mm -hmm. reach out to people and she's like, mm -hmm. ah, I'm so proud of you. And yeah, that's right. <laughs> she does something up and she'll be very supportive from afar. Yeah. You know, and on one if hand, you to, if you need to get some positive love, just friend my mom, just put some random shit up there and she'll send all kinds of positive vibes your way. Yeah. Daily her affirmations. You know, her, I think on the positive side is that, you know, she said that she used to be able to go to many places all over the city, take you guys all over, you know, or, or even, and even before, even when she was younger and felt safe, relatively speaking, you uh -huh. know, and that, that, that she feels sort of sad for a lot of today's generation because they don't have that same luxury, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, but then on the other hand, the sort of, fixed views on life lead us to lack of progress right and lack of becoming more sensitive and more aware of people's needs and traumas and desire for growth and openness as a society and whatnot so 
things are things are never fixed and i think it would be short-sighted for us to think that we know exactly what's going to happen personally professionally or relationally you know because to your point you know it's like oh look that person's married they have two kids they're working they got a great job at the factory you know they should be set forever now factory closes everything's upside down on its head you know I think like for him, it's weird because he has to confront like a major point of, and this is like, I guess the gist of this in a deep way is he has to go and and confront a major point of like sociocultural ethics. He has to hit that really hard, right? you know, which you wouldn't anticipate, you know? So yeah, we can make it what we will of that as we go forward, but it's like, it's not even like, it's partially something weird happened from the outside. Obviously he felt like he had bonds with other people that he had to explore that justified that, which mm-hmm. he probably wouldn't have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Like you, don't, you don't get the feeling like he was planning on that at all. Right. Um, but it also isn't just like an external thing happened, like the factory closed or, you know, all of a sudden your business, the pandemic happens and you lose your business or something like those things happen too. Mm-hmm. The problem of change. Right. Mm-hmm. Samsara, right. But also he's confronted with like an entirely different way of having to think about this major aspect of life. He has to think about human relationship in an entirely different way than the entire, his entire upbringing and the entire way in which the culture he was in would have framed it. He has to invent a new way of being in the world. I can make the same argument, right? I can make the same argument for somebody who, you know, I just met a guy over this past weekend uh, I bought some, you know, recovery equipment, I guess you can call it, uh, from a dude who open, you know, get, got money, uh, had probably, a, I think he said a 40,000 square foot gym, which is a huge place. Um, got it going in 2019, had his first prop- profitable month in January of 2020. And then pandemic hit and, you know, lost everything. And could not, you know, couldn't pursue, but that was a buildup of, of several years of, you know, he said about, he started training in about 2013. So that was his career and he's not a young dude. I mean, I'd imagine he's around 50 now when uh-huh. I, you know, when I met him. So he's having to grapple with the, you know, financial strains of, of the failing business, which was not being helped out by the landlord or anything else, but then also like a career, a, a, you know, a career change, n- not being able to do something he felt more passionate about, you know what I'm saying? So yes, on one hand, you know, having to change the way you deal with relationship or you view relationships and work with relationships is a deep thing, but also not being able to pursue your, your creative outlet, your desire to help and, and be paid to help because that means you can do it more regularly as opposed to just like the random time your neighbor asks you to help them lift their refrigerator out of their basement. You know what I'm saying? Like this is this is a regular thing that he wanted to do and, and wasn't able to do it. And so then is having to sort of readjust uh, his expectations, you know, and the way in which that he engages with work and his own kind of desire to be useful, you know, for other people in a specific kind of a way. Yeah, I mean, I don't have like a, <clears throat> it's not an either or thing. Sure. Both people are going through something. I think yeah. the way it looks like when you really look at Jung, he was raised in a certain way of looking at the world. You could have mm-hmm. your business not work and then open up a gym someplace else. You know what I mean? Or you could like, you're not necessarily changing <clears throat> your entire vision of how you think the world is. And Jung has Jung has to do this because he's coming out of a certain cultural way of thinking and he has to like change. 
So, you know, you could go and like, I mean, there's no, there's no real argument in it in some level. Right. This is what the dude went through. He was raised in a way where like, I'm like coming from this religious family. I have a certain set of beliefs, sure. a certain worldview, and now I'm going to have to like change it, which is different I, uh, to me, but you know, other people can have their own reactions to this, mm-hmm. you know, to like, okay, I tried to have a business and it didn't work because I got shut down by a pandemic or something. That's like a change in life. Right. But it's not as much maybe of a change of like your whole inner value structure of what you think things are like are going to have to like spin sure. around or something. I think yeah. it depends on how deeply you believe in either one. So if you're I get the vibe that I think he did. Right. So if you're yeah. if you are, you know, a listener of this podcast and you have a view for yourself and a, you know, a career path that you want to take or something else like this, like you, in order to be at least have a chance at being successful, you have to give yourself completely to that thing, right? So you and I wanted to study Chinese medicine. We had to be complete Chinese medicine students completely. And to be able to visualize, maybe not how the career would work out, but to know that we're going to apply and practice these teachings, this medicine over and over and over and over and over again, and be paid for it, right? In order to be able to do that. And unfortunately, the statistics bear out that about 50% of people who start school are not going to be able to, to finish, practice, are not going to finish or not going to practice for a very variety of reasons. But that's a loss of an identity of how it is that you think you're going to be in the world, right? Simultaneously, if you were raised in a very particular kind of religious you know, background or cultural background, even if you will, for people who are you know maybe like first generation in this country, or even in a different country, if you don't vibe with your particular culture, you know, that the transcendence away from that is a is another loss of identity, a loss of a vision, a loss of a way of being, the removal of a very particular path that you think you're going to go down, assuming you believed in it wholeheartedly, right? That in order to leave it, you have to, I think anyways, you have to be it fully. Like you have to see it completely and then let it go also completely, which then thereby is sort of an end of a, it's a transition. It's a bit of a Bardo state, actually, in my, in my opinion, you know, because mm-hmm. the only way that you could have the, the vision that it's real is by like allowing your, your mind and your body to be immersed in the possibility that they, that that thing is actually going to happen, you know, and then the loss of it feels as real as if it did happen. Well, I knew when I was going to TCM that I was doing something that was a little bit off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. I was taking the 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 road less traveled or whatever, like the old poem or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So I felt like, okay, I have to take the responsibility on this. You know, there's there are there are more well-trodden roads, mm-hmm. right? But I felt like, okay, I want to walk this road that's not as trodden. So you're doing something there, which I can kind of get, right? Mm-hmm. I think the thing that's different, and again, we can let it go. It's not that big of a deal, but like the thing is, it's an ethical thing here. If you have a culture that says, this is ethical, this is how you're supposed to be. And then you have to break with the ethical thing. That's a different gig, I think. Yeah. It's not the same as going like, well, I'm going to choose a different career path that might, this is like, and he obviously went through this struggle. So I'm making the point really, I mean, not on the behalf of Jung, he doesn't mean me to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. But that is like his experience that, you know, and this is, and Esther Perel talks about that too. When people have to break with what they think are very deeply entrenched ethical beliefs, it's like not a small deal. Right. You've been raised since you were small to hold, hold a certain, a certain ethical framework. So I think, I think, I don't think you can get around 
to, to tell Jung's story, let's say, you can't get around the fact that like, yeah, this was a like an ethical crisis for him. Mm. Something was going to happen, you know, that was going to be like pushing him into something that was like, okay, now I'm going to be, and it's interesting in the book I was using, they use the word transgression. Now I'm mm. going to do something that would be otherwise would have seemed to me to be transgressive before, but I'm going to face this. And that's obviously like a wrestling match for him. Like he has to kind of go through something. So it seems like in his story around the age of 38, he's going through this period of like transformation and crisis. Mm. He seems to understand people who go through these things because it's part of how he talks clinically. And we mentioned this, I think, in previous episodes. It's obvious like he had his marriage, which was successful. He had his own professional life and career, which was successful. He was financially set. He had kids that were fine and that he loved. And yet he still something was wrong in him for him right so he almost goes to this kind of like dark night of the soul thing in the mdr memories dreams reflections this autobiography thing he doesn't really talk about all the details of this he just says like okay i went through some period of crisis what's really interesting is when you like kind of understand this part of his life that we're talking about here all of a sudden you realize what happened to him was that he felt himself being drawn to some other person being in love with two people and not knowing what to do about that Right. He was faced with this huge crisis point in his life. Right. Mm -hmm. And really not knowing where to go with it. So that's kind of the next part of the story, which was partially like it's a personal thing. I think it's also for him like in like, a again, a deeper thing from the culture that he was from, you know, like how he was thinking about things. Again, being a Judeo-Christian dude, thinking in a Judeo-Christian way, like being struck with this thing. Now, what do I do? Right. So <clears throat> the person he met here was this woman named Sabrina Spielrein, right? And so there's kind of three major women who seem to be an influence on his life in this time period. And, uh, well, maybe well, we got to bounce pretty soon. No, we should do it because if we start the next episode with just loves of his life, you know, like it'll be. I think it might have to be that way because I don't think we're going to finish it all. How long have you got? Uh, 15 minutes. I don't know if we'll finish it all, but we can try. <laughs> Let's try there's stuff to say, right? Well, we can start with the next time we can start with the commentary, but we can give the story now. No, we could try to. I don't know, but I don't want to rush through the story either. So I don't know if that's going to work either. So, well, maybe we'll do like a little start of it. We'll see what you want to call it. Okay. So, um, so you need context. So she's from a wealthy Russian Jewish family. And um, as a girl, she's described as like highly imaginative and someone who kind of felt like she had like a higher calling. And probably like a spiritual aspect to who she was, maybe like more intrinsically. So she would speak about, uh, you know, like a, a guardian spirit she had, and she would talk with this guardian spirit and so on. So on. So it seemed like she had a really deep sense of like the more mystical or parts of life or something. And that's obviously something that seemed like that was going to resonate between the two of them, between Jung and her. She seems to have had like early life traumas, like a very chaotic early life. The marriage from her family that she came from was very chaotic. And it seems like she was suffering, she suffered from like physical abuse, probably from both the parents and their speculations about whether there was maybe sexual abuse from someone within her circle too. Uh, it looks like as she got to be a grown up, that she had questions about sort of like masochistic tendencies within herself. Mm -hmm. But then also it seems like she would wildly act out. There's a movie about this with um, Kira Knightley, who plays Sabrina Spielrein. Mm. Michael Fassbender. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Young, What's it called? Uh, a Dangerous Method. There you go. Yeah, yeah. And I'll talk about that movie in a little bit because there's some critique of that thing. 
though, I think it's still interesting to watch. Viggo Mortensen plays Freud. They all do a pretty good job, you know, mm-hmm. in this thing. Mm-hmm. I usually mention at this point that for some reason, and I, I'm a, one of the most cis heterosexual dudes on the planet, but there's something attractive about Michael Fassbender, and I can't totally explain why. <laughs> I know. What do you think? You like Michael Fassbender at all, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, he's good as Magneto in X-Men. So Yeah, yeah I like him in Magneto. But there's something, so, there's something magnetic, mag, magnetic about him. Fucker's magnetic. Anyway. I gotta keep my paper clips away from him. <laughs> yeah, but they're all—it's they're they're all good in the movie. Yeah. But what you what they kind of show was you know what seemed to happen to Kira Knightley slash Sabina Spielrein. Like they don't go over it in the movie too much, but her sister dies, and then she starts doing these kind of wild acting out, almost what you would see in someone who might be a little bit bipolar or something. It looks pretty bad. Like she would. I don't know. I think in the movie they show her like hopping in a fountain and screaming and laughing and throwing things at people. Like she's really, her behavior has gotten really acting out and kind of bizarre, but she's diagnosed at the time with kind of a like hysteria, which would be named after the uterus, right? Which is wrongly named. Um, One of these old antiquated diagnoses, but the idea of like somatoform disorder, we probably would say now that she just starts like going through these fits and having seen people who go through these things, you can kind of understand it. It can almost sometimes look like seizure disorder. Sometimes people will just act crazy. They'll throw things and they'll really get very violent. Mm. I mean, I, you know, you see patients who have this, it's kind of sometimes much more extreme and violent than you would even imagine. So uh, she's like this, you know, Um, and she goes through different kinds of therapy attempts and they fail, but eventually she's put into the clinic where Jung is working, and Jung takes her case on. And ultimately, it seems like he kind of starts to like really kind of cure her. And so it's one of the first cases where Jung is using kind of the Freud method of talking. They show it in the movie in an interesting way, because Jung is kind of sitting in a chair, not facing her. She's in front, and he's trying to get her to talk about, again, looking inside, as we were talking about earlier, into her inner world, her inner emotions. And to be able to like kind of express some of these things and and they do like a talking therapy you know and jung wasn't necessarily even trained in it he just kind of read freud's methods and kind of went okay i'm gonna try to do this and so he has this incredibly successful case with her which is again kind of amazing whenever i think about that i think well that's incredible because you really imagine someone like that just you know no other drug interventions nothing else kind of available just to talk them through this is pretty amazing so he walks her through this whole thing and, uh, you know, being one of the first people in the world doing this. And she turns out to become like this incredibly successful person. So obviously he's a positive person in her life. She goes on to med school. She becomes a psychiatrist. She eventually becomes an analyst within this kind of Jung Freud world. She becomes one of the first women sort of in Freud's circles. She's writing articles. She's presenting things. There's a famous child psychologist named uh, Piaget. And I think she analyzed him, which I had never heard of before yeah. that happening. So she ends up being this very kind of like very successful person. And it looks like this is a very positive and powerful clinical relationship between the two of them. And then the relationship ends. And um, clinically, professionally, Sabrina Sreeline seems to go through the med school. And then that's where they kind of like, they realize that there's this sort of romantic connection between the two of them, you know? And, um, uh, her relationship with Jung seems to be like they're definitely seem to have been in love with each other, even during the time when they were going through the anal- anal- analysis, something clicks between the two of them. Um, and this leads to kind of this crisis for the both of them, 
and it pushes very deep. Like she obviously has extremely deep feelings and um, they take on like all these kind of different layers so that there's part of the story where she really desires to have a kid with Jung. She really wants to have a child with him and it becomes this very deep thing for her. And she almost sees it as being like a little bit a psycho-spiritual thing that she really wants to produce another life with him though they both practically know that this is impossible. So that becomes part of the story too. But they both, you know, are put under this tension, but they seem to kind of like be drawn to another in this way. And it seems to have been a transformative thing between the two of them. But there's a big debate about how sexual it was. Mm. Was it a sexual relationship between the two of them or not? And there's an interesting thing about this where it looks like like the Sabrina Spielrein would write very candidly to her mother, like shockingly or surprisingly so for the time. She would say things like, hey, I'm in love with Jung. This is what's going on, you know. But she wrote like uh, sharing at least that it was happening, but, you know, not going into details. And it's really interesting because she kind of describes her relationship with Jung. I'm kind of doing the writing gesture uh, as a kind of a poetry. She keeps using this word poetry. So there's something kind of beautiful she feels like is happening between the two of them. But at the same time, it seems to indicate that they they may not have been, you know, sexually intimate between the two of them. Because there's always this whole conversation about, like, would they have a kid, not have a kid? And Sabrina Spriorin is always saying, like, well, the circumstances even to do that aren't happening. This is a point of some major debate, you know, um, because I think there's a lot of speculation about what happened between them. But it looks like when you go deeper, like in the movie with Michael Fassbender as Jung and Keira Knightley as Sabrina Spielrein, you know, they kind of assume that they have all this kind of physical intimacy, but it's not really entirely obvious. And that seems to be a repeating thing in stories about Jung, where people just assume all these things. They write entire scenes into a story <laughs> that might not have ever really happened. So in the Keira Knightley, Michael Fassbender one, they almost kind of assume that the relationship is almost kind of like BDSM kind of a thing. They have these scenes, you know, where Kira Knightley's kind of on the bed and Michael Fassbender has a belt and they're playing out these big scenes. Mm. But it's obviously like just some weird speculation. And as I was doing the research more recently, the author, one of the authors I read was pointing out like, yeah, that seems to happen with Jung all the time. People are constantly writing scenes that they would have no way that these things happened. And they make all these assumptions but in the end, if you really listen to Jung talk about it or you look at Sabina Spierrein's letters, it doesn't even seem obvious that they were that. They certainly doesn't seem like they had intercourse, hmm. but they had something very, very intense between the two of them. So maybe like a more constrained kind of physical int intimacy, but nothing that would ever lead to a pregnancy. Heavy petting, they call this, Eric. Maybe something like that. But, you know, she's calling it like a poetry. So whatever was happening between them was sort of a very deep psycho-emotional thing for them hmm. both. I know how you feel about that, but I, I mean, I think those kinds of things do happen between people, you know, where they yeah. have this quite intense thing and it's not obvious what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it's kind of pretty like, I think it is a thing that happens. And I think it's kind of an interesting thing to talk about on a podcast like this one. Right. Mm -hmm. Because he's presented with this thing, Jung and Spielrein both. And it's not obvious like to them what they're supposed to do about it, but there are those intensities and people get close and they're not sure what to do. I mean, I know I've had those kinds of experiences in my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I so, think it is. I think it is probably more common than people are willing to admit actually. Yeah. I suspect so too. Um, I mean, especially if you're work in a place for a long time. Oh yeah. 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 
right? Because it just you're you're surrounded by people whom you lower your guard to, you know, and it makes sense that there would be something. You know, there, there's numerous ways that in which relationships start, and I remember this from my uh, junior college. Uh, what do you want to call it? Kind of human sciences class. You know, they talked about relationships yeah. and sex and whatever. But the most common, the most frequent way that relationships start is through commonality, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Being in the same place at the same time over and over and over again. You just start to see somebody a little bit different as time goes on. And I and I think it's because you lower your guard, you know? Like you lower your guard, they lower their guard, and all of a sudden, like, you can feel a little bit more than you would be processing with them. And all of a sudden one day it's like, oh, they look cute by the water cooler over there today. That was, that's strange. You know, I feel some sort of hormonal magnetism happening, you know? Yeah. And then before you know it, it, it starts. Now this could happen whether you're in a relationship or not. It's just human nature. I don't think it's good or bad or anything. I think it's normal, you know? Yeah. Uh, but then depending on the, the intensity, the severity and whatever else you are, you may be faced with, as Jung was, a, you know, so-called moral dilemma, you know, an ethical, an ethical, societal, ethical uh, bridge to, to cross. Right. And then, you know, what you do with that is ultimately up to you. But the dynamics of a relationship are, are such that anything can be healing if you allow it to be, even if it's a constrained relationship where you know, you're having to repress your maybe sexual feelings for somebody because of circumstances, you know, but I think in that repression, if you allow yourself to express it in a different way, or, you know, in, in some way, somehow, that that connection can deepen and can and often be something that doesn't necessarily have to just be blocked, repressed, and then totally not acknowledged at all because the fear of, you know, let's just call it what it is, penetration, mm -hmm. right, is so great that you throw the baby out with the bathwater. And maybe for some people, there it, it, it is a black or white thing. You're either doing something or not doing something. So if it's, you know, like Mike Pence and you're you can't be alone with another woman, uh, in a in a room because he said uh, something like that. I can't be alone with another woman. The you know with a, a woman alone. Yeah, like I mean that's just un that's just unreal. Just like watch. more than half the population is women. You should be able to not objectify them, right? Or whatever sex you're interested in. You should be able to not objectify every person that you find attractive. Like it, calm down. You know what I'm saying? Like no, I think like what happens with Jung is it's a love thing. Sure. That's what's getting him. It's not just like, oh, she's cute. Something but else love, happened. Love like starts a, like, different for different people. Well, but I mean, I, I, I don't know. All I can say is for myself, I'm going to say that there's a difference between these two states. I don't think like thinking somebody's cute by the water fountain is the same as feeling like that you're passionately in love with them. That's not the same thing. Right. But for for some people, that acknowledgement is the is the the droplet of water that fills the lake of love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like that, that question of like, what does it mean for two people? Like, if you're going to love someone, you said it's commonality. It could be commonality of like being in the same environment. and You start to develop some familiarity. Sure. But it also could be like commonality. Probably what Jung seemed to feel that which was like, we are kindred spirits. Commonality. Sure. sure. We are, you know, we are 
longing to know and understand mm -hmm. you know like something deeper you know i mean that's kind yeah. of more love than it is like lust or whatever word you want to use you know sexual interest or something like mm -hmm. that right yeah, yeah. yeah i mean you're referencing an internal commonality and i'm looking at like an environmental commonality but i think that the acknowledgement of something that is you know beyond cordial right depending on the person might be a deep admission right depending on how they were raised or brought up or whatever you know be culturally influenced even just admitting that you've that, well, it's hard for people that you probably even to do that right, right? that's what I, that's what i'm saying yeah. and keep in but mind like, we're talking about attraction to some other person that might be even hard for people to right do and you're talking about carl jung whose entire work was on the self so he's going to be a deeply inward driven individual most people are not so i feel like even getting people to admit something like when someone says i like you mm -hmm. just change the last the middle two letters right it's what's the difference between liking and loving something? It's just a matter of intensity. You know well, what I'm saying? Well, okay, that's you know that's right. Where we're, it's it's semantics, <laughs> but what? But where does that enter? Where does the energy of that language de is derived? Where is that derived from? It de it derives from desire, right? Derives from feeling of admiration or or whatever it is that you want to describe love for your own particular self. Do you know what I'm saying? But it's yeah. it's a desire to be around that thing and have an intimacy with that thing have a deeper connection with that thing or maybe just acknowledging that it's already there you know depending on how you depending on how you look at it but we could just say that there is an attractive force right and maybe liking is less than loving something but for me i think even admitting that you like something is an admission that on that that some level of you loves it enough to admit that you like it <laughs> you know what i'm saying <laughs> I love it enough to admit that I like it. That's right. That's right. Because I think it's difficult for people. And so even conversations like this, while they're real, you know, I don't know that others are going to be able to feel that in that way with that depth and then, and then have language for it, you know? Well, I mean, like, then it gets to the question of like, can you, can you develop a kind of an understanding and empathy for what the, you know, like we're talking about two people here, we're doing mm -hmm. you, right? Talking mm -hmm. about him. So when you look at it, you try to understand, like, so what were people feeling, you know? And I think for a lot of us, we would say, okay, there's one thing to say, like, and I think we, you know, if we talk honestly about this, there's times in your life where like, oh, that person's cute. I and mean, I kind yeah. of generally have a good feeling yeah. about them yeah. and, you know, whatever. Or we've all had relationships where like, oh, I like that person and that's fine. And then that person leaves and you're like, well, I guess that's okay too. Right. <laughs> we've all been through that, right? Even if you're really fond of the person, you know, you're not like, there isn't this extra thing, whatever this extra thing is, mm. that really, you know, is uh, the alchemical ingredient that I think Jung is experiencing. Here. Right. It's not heart wrenching. Yeah, it's not heart wrenching. You know, and I think, yeah, if you're honest, we've all been through that. Right. And we probably all have been on different sides of this too. Sometimes, you, you know, I'm sure we all had the experience of like, wow, this person really loves me in a way that I can't reciprocate. Right. I can't go to that place. I don't have that feeling for them. Right. Uh, but in this situation, I think they found themselves in this spot, which I think, you know, I guess the way I'm thinking about this, Daniel, is that it has to come from someplace inside. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not a deeper, a deeper feeling of inner draw and commonality is where this is coming from. Certainly for Jung yeah. and for the Sabrina Spearline, that's what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to be talking about like 
um, you know, just a sexual attraction or something like that. They're talking about something that they both experience is coming from some deeper inner place, just to understand what they're what they're going through. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I think like otherwise it wouldn't have been this tumult for the both of them. You know, something happens that obviously is like deeply tumultuous. And it looks like, so how did Jung think about this based on what we were talking about before, right? So it looks like part of this was archetypal. I think he felt like he realized that there was some part of himself that could have this intensity of feeling. And then he associated it with some inner part of himself that he had discovered too. So that's an interesting way to frame this. If we go back to like our, our conversations about the archetypes in Jung, right? Mm-hmm. What Jung felt was something like, okay, I fall in love with this external person, but she's also activating some deeper inner part of me, right. which is an interesting way to talk about like what love is between people. Mm-hmm. Something within me is being activated mm-hmm. and some kind of strong feeling about femininity because he's a, you know, cis heterosexual dude drawing the women. So this kicks in some kind of archetypal thing in him. And I think there's something about that that's really interesting in this, you know, that that's part of what happens in this love experience. Mm-hmm. It's partially about that person. And I think they're both like intelligent people. Sabrina Spirin and Jung, they're both like exploring this. They both seem like they're interested in inner exploration, right? And they start to pick up on this and it becomes kind of a conversation point. It looks like between the two of them where he realizes like, yeah, I love you, but I'm also experiencing this whole inner revolution that's happening in me because you're triggering something really deep inside of me. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the idea, you know? Mm-hmm. And he was really famous for writing this thing called the red book that didn't get published until way after his death. It didn't get published until like even the aughts, I think, or something, right? 20, like 29, 2009, 2010. 2009 seems about right. Yeah. I had that same number in my head. So he starts writing this red book thing, which is this very personal writings. A lot of them are about dreams and visions and his thoughts about things. He doesn't, he can explicitly come out within it and talk about his relationships with Sabrina Spielrein or like a couple of the other people that we'll talk about too, just to get a feeling for how he thought about this. But he starts writing this thing, you know, and it seems like it's driven by these experiences that he's having with, you know, Sabrina Spielrein here and then some of the other people who are going to enter his life in this way. And it looks like, like, again, as a partner, she's open enough to recognize that he's transforming in this way. It mm. seems to be something that they're both able to talk about. Whether everyone would be able to do that or not, I don't know. Right. But they seem to be both like both very introspective people who have this deep thing with one another and they're willing to go through this process. And for him, he has this archetypal inner, what you might call anima experience. He feels something of his own inner sense of femininity. When I when I read the MDR back in the day for the first time, probably when I was in grad school and finishing it, finishing up with grad school or something. He talks about this experience in kind of a veiled way. And it struck me at the time. We're not talking about ourselves, but I think I've had experiences like this. And he says something like, this is kind of the gateway sometimes for spirituality for people. Sure. You meet someone it's super powerful and they strike something super deep in you. And it starts to churn inside of you. And then all of a sudden you realize that there's more in your own inner world or something than what you thought. And it looks like that's what happened to him. Well, they'll, in the, you know, some aspects of the Jewish tradition, they'll say that, you know, a soul is incomplete until it's found its partner, you know, until you're married with, right? That you're, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, or, you know, if you want to get tantric until like 
that outer dakini stimulates the inner dakini, mm-hmm. right? The outer goddess stimulates the inner goddess. Mm-hmm. So he says these things about that's kind of like the gateway to the divine. You know, he kind of proposes like elite, and it seems like you, where does that come from? And I thought about that when I was reading him back in the day, and I was like, okay, you know, in part, you, if you've had an experience like that, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I know what that feels like. He's describing something real that you can, you can know that if you happen to have had that experience. But then he kind of goes further and he says, I, I started to think, oh, that's, it has a truth to it. You have these very strong emotional alchemical connections with another person and they trigger something in you that is kind of a gateway to something more, you know, deeply spiritual or something, which I think that's kind of a fascinating part of his story. Yes. What do you think, Daniel? Yeah, I agree. I was just writing that, taking, taking a note for this to put it in the show notes, but yes, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think I, well, my time is, is tight anyways right now, but yeah, I think yeah, okay. we'll pick up on it. Like, so I think my idea in doing this is we can just go through, we'll tell the tale a little bit, but I think as you go along, you sort of get the idea of like how it connects to our previous episodes that, mm-hmm. you know, stuff that happened to him. Like he had this idea of these archetypes, mm-hmm. but I think he's developing them around this time period. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems like what happened was he fell in love with this woman. It triggered this archetypal response. Him, and he went, what the hell is this? Mm. And that almost leads him to start thinking, okay, there seems like there's a different inner world where there's these figures that will appear. We'll talk about more next time. Yeah. But if, if it isn't for this thing, I don't think he thinks about archetypes. Mm. I think he goes like, this is how he, re- like, how he comes up with this idea. I'm snapping my fingers a lot. <laughs> but I think it's how he comes up with the idea. He goes like, yeah, I, I, this, this person has touched and created this part in me that I didn't know was there. Mm. It's kind of fascinating, actually, if you get like the whole of his theory, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. You got to bounce. Yes, sir. Intense episode. <laughs> yeah. We don't we don't like we don't skip on the on the whiskey and the gin and tantra mm-hmm. philosophy. No, we're, we're, we're full of like, gin. Know, that much gin, little layer tonic on the top. Just, just the top. Just a just a tip. <laughs> little bit of dry vermouth on the top. Mostly it's good. Mm-hmm. Mostly it's gin and vodka, right? Yeah. All right. All right, my friend. Well, as always, thank you so much. so much. Appreciate it uh, yeah. for our listeners and viewers and, uh, you know, lovers and haters, all of the, <laughs> you know, all of the people. All the very archetypal figures in our lives. That's right. We need the Judases too. You know, we really, yeah. we, uh, we definitely do. Um, yeah, we want to say thank you. And, you know, if you're watching this on the YouTubes or something like that, leave a comment, like, subscribe. If you're catching us on the just the audio version, you know, you can leave a, a, you know, a comment or a like or a five star on the Apple podcast. We do appreciate it. You know, that helps the show grow for sure. Uh, we do this as a labor of love. We, you know, don't ask for anything other than your attention. And as I established earlier, that is the most precious resource in the world. So we're as- actually not asking for a small uh extraction here it's a large extraction but we hope for the exchange that there is uh something that is worthwhile to be taken into your life and shared with uh the people who you know the people who you don't know and the people who you might not even like that's that's even better you know uh so you know hit us up on instagram uh, if you want to leave us a a message or, or email us at gin and tantra at gmail.com i just recently had somebody who wanted to get hooked up with uh, mary Kay. And so if you're, you know, listening to us and there's, you know, you have a question about a book or there's some, you know, guest or topic that we've been over that you have a further question on or want to get hooked up with, you know, please feel free, reach out. We do respond and I will, we'll do our best to kind of point you in the right direction. It's definitely a pleasure uh, to know that, you know, people are engaged with the work that, uh, 
that we're doing here. And it's, uh, it's motivating for us to continue to do so. So um, from my heart to yours, uh, muchas gracias. And for Eric, this is Daniel. We'll catch you in the next one. Peace. to get together.